Amen. Uh, let's pray. Let's pray. God, I thank you tonight, um, once again, for words of a song. Thank you that we are not, we are not a slave to fear. We are children of the Most High God. We are blessed with your victory, Jesus. Not ours, but we're blessed with yours. And we're going to hear some tonight how that even before we began the assault, Father, even before Joshua began the assault, that the cities were already his because you said they were. And I rest tonight in your sovereign grace. I rest tonight, Father, in the knowledge, the full knowledge, that you are in control. In fact, this is not a world spinning out of control. It is not a world spinning out of control. But you are sovereign. I can't thank you enough for, Lord, your presence this morning. Uh, We sang, Father, that song that says, Holy Spirit, fill the atmosphere. And this morning, God was just electric. It was just electric with the power of God. And I'm so grateful for that gift that you gave us. Thank you for your word. And we pray it's penetrated our heart and begin settling in and concreting itself, Father, there in our heart. As we look tonight, Father, about, about the role of those who are, are older and writing legacies and those who are younger and it will embrace leadership, Father, we pray again you would do the same thing. Not necessarily the intensity, the emotion, the passion. Not that, God. But let the truth speak loudly to us. May the truth speak loudly to us. And may we openly embrace the truth. It's really wonderful to know, God, that you are the appointment maker. And that you have scheduled appointments for us tonight. And I want to thank you for the ones who have kept their appointment with you. Thank you for their attendance tonight. And God, we pray that uh, as we leave this place, we'll say it was good to be in the house of the Lord. It was good to worship and praise the name of Jesus. It was good to proclaim the word of God. And Jesus, I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen. So isn't God good? He he really is. He he really is. He just is. Well, let me um, open up with just a little bit of more information um, from this morning. Because, again, it kind of sets the groundwork. We, um, it's so funny. I, I want to share, I'd love to share so much of what I heard because of, of the way it was presented. But, uh, this young pastor is one I keep quoting this, is 38 years old that threw these numbers all together. Let, let me get, since we got time tonight, let me tell you a little bit about him. And I don't know a lot because I don't know his name. As far, I mean, I know his name is, is, is James, um, Dickerson, but I don't know him before that, for this conference. And again, it wrote that, right, did you write that title down this morning? The Great Evangelical Recession. Um, y'all write that down. I'm, I'm, we're going to buy it. You, I know we'll get it. And so um, it's, it's just it's got a lot of information. Now, unfortunately, I noticed the publication date is 2013. So already it's three years old. So some of the data that's in there is already, can I be honest, worse than it was. Worse than it was. Um, that happened. But he said, you know, I know some of you guys wrestle with numbers and it's boring to you. You know, it may, here's what he said. Here's what he said in front of a thousand guys. He goes, you know, you may want to throw up in your mouth. You know, I don't know. Um, but I, I happen, statistics speak volumes to me. It helps me see where we are. It helps me see. I'm not a numbers man uh, in the sense I hate math. I can't do math very well. But it really helps me to understand. It's like brush strokes on a canvas. It helps paint a picture. 
And so, the, several things we heard. One I said this morning already, that, that, now let me say it again, you know, two out of three young evangelicals will leave the church and leave the faith, actually is what it says, leave the faith by the time they're 30. And the majority will never come back. And I, and I say that to say this, you know, the church is, is one, we're top-heavy. Now, some of the things I'm going to say tonight, and I, there are two things I know of. This is one of them. I don't think it's necessarily true about Doorsville. Um, I told somebody at the conference, I was talking to another pastor, and I said, God has just really blessed us with a pretty balanced congregation. Um, old, uh, middle-old, <laughs> middle-age, and, and young marrieds, and, and then students and children. We're, we're pretty balanced out. But you understand that, again, is not really true of the church as a whole. And, and in one of the conferences I went to, the breakout sessions, you know, he said the church is top-heavy. The church is top-heavy. And, and there's a lot more of, of the 45 and olders than there are under 45. That's just the way it is. And then you add to that the fact that two out of three of these people, these folks under 30, are going to walk away from their faith. You understand it's going to get worse before it gets better. It's going to get worse. In fact, he said, you know, there's a real danger because if they're walking away and we're dying, you can see the struggle for the church to keep growing. Now, again, we're not a slave of fear. That should not be discouraging. It should be a piece of information that calls the urgency of the moment. That's all it should be. It's not a thing of fear. It's, it's, a, it's a thing that calls us to the urgency of the moment. Um, one of the numbers they threw out was, and I only remember a couple of them, but, you know, Ken's generation, uh, the greatest generation, um, no cub jokes, Ken, no cub jokes. But that generation, you know, 5% of them, the ones that are alive today, 5% of them uh, declare no religious identity, none. No, no religious identity, just 5%, just 5%. I do remember the boomers, and that's somewhere like, well, I know I'm one of them, so I can tell you. I think I go up to 64, 5, those are 64, 65. About 15%, about 15% claim no religious identity. Um, and then it jumps up to Generation X, and they were about, if we were 15, it was about 19%. But here's, here's the crazy thing, is that when he did this information, um, 34% of millennials have no religious identity. 34%, it gets worse. It gets worse. They said now, the guy updated it and said, they just published a new study that 40%. Of millennials. Now, millennials are born between 82 and 02, roughly. It's really 81 and like 03, but, but simplicity gives us 20 years. 02, okay, uh, 19, I always get this wrong, 1989 to about 2001, 2002. That's when they were, that's when they were born. I still didn't get it right. 81, 02. There you go. 81, 02. About those 20 years span, 40% of them have no religious identity. Uh, those that live in America have no religious identity. So it's really, it's a really a difficult place. It's a really difficult place. The fields truly are white under harvest, but you're going to find the harvest is intensely hard. Um, one of the things I remember them saying was, is that millennials are just a different group of people in the sense that, in the sense that they value knowledge over experience. You know, if you, if you hire a millennialist, you know, that, that, in that age group, don't be surprised if you hire them at your company and they walk in and say, I'd like to tell you how to run your company. In fact, why don't you just promote me to president and we'll get it over with. They just value knowledge over experience. And does that play in the church? Absolutely it does. You know, a millennial might get saved and think he's ready to be the next Billy Graham. Instantly. Ta-da. Just like that. It's crazy. There's one more thing I want to share with you. Again, I don't think it's true of Dorsville. That's the second thing. That's true. I don't think it's true of Dorsville. Because there's, there's a time of leanness, leanness coming. Leanness coming um, for the church. About, nationally speaking... For those 45 and older 
give about 70% of the money. Those 45 and older give about 70% of the money. Again, I don't think that's true in Dorsville, but, but, it's, but it's true in churches across the land. Which means, which means that right now a millennialist gives about 4%. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. You know, 4% of the church's income comes from the millennialists. That's all. That's all. Okay? So what's going to happen? As those who give the bulk of the money die off, what's going to happen to budgets? They get leaner and leaner and leaner and leaner and leaner. So I'm telling you, there's coming a day, and it is now, that we need to really rely on God. We really need to trust God. All that information, not for you to be afraid, but for you to sense the urgency of the moment. So what I want to do tonight is, I want to spend some time, there are two scriptures, um, basically. One is Numbers 27. We want to talk about um, the need that Moses saw of establishing young leaders. In the church. And, well, in the children of Israel in that case. But we'll apply it to the church today. How, how did he go about that? How did that happen? And then, and then for, for the young folks that are here and for those of us who can share it later on with them, is we're going to go to Joshua chapter 1, where we were on the sermon sheet this morning, the second part, and look at Joshua as he took over the reins of leadership and some lessons that we can learn and we can teach to our young leaders. Okay? So we begin in Numbers 27. Now, verses 12 through 14 are basically just a recap of what we studied this morning in Deuteronomy 34. You know, God takes Moses up to Pisgah, shows him all the land, and says, this is all the land, and uh, this is why I'm going to keep my promise to the people of God. You know, just like I said I would, um, I want you to see it, you know, but you can't go in. That's really what those verses do. It's kind of a recap of what we studied this morning. And, and in this verses coming up, now listen, this is where it gets us. We see the wisdom of Moses and the will of God played out. We see the wisdom of Moses and the will of God played out. Here's what it says. Verse 15 of Numbers 27. So Moses appealed to the Lord. He just learned, remember, he's going to die. May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the community, a man who will go out before them, the people, and come back in before them, and who will bring them out and bring them in. So what Moses is saying is that if I'm going to die then we're going, to need, we're going to need a leader. We're going to need someone, as I pass on, I need to have someone to pass the mantle on to. And so, so what we, we need to find a man who will go out before them and come in before them. In other words, a man who's willing to lead the people, but also who will bring them, who has the ability to lead them and draw them in the direction they need to go. Now, I ask myself instantly the question, how well are we doing it in the church? How well are we preparing the younger generation? And, and let's just go ahead for simplicity's sake today and say 45 down. It could probably be lower than that. But, but how, are, how is the church preparing young leaders? May I say this? Not well. Not well. Frankly, we want to hold on to the reins of leadership as long as we can. Frankly, I'm not sure we trust the young whippersnappers. I remember one of the stories that, that we all gasped at. We were in this breakout session about passing on the mantle. And a church, this is a true story, a church decided to have a meeting with the millennials who went to their church. And they were, again, they were top-heavy in the older part. The few millennials they had, they wanted to meet with them and say, how can we better engage you? How can we better minister to you? How can we better prepare you? And so one of the guys, you know, it's kind of quiet there for a minute, and they're sitting around a the table. They invited several people from the church. It wasn't just all deacons and staff. 
And finally, one of the millennials spoke up, a man spoke up, a young man spoke up, and said, well, you know, I really think a guitar in worship would help. And there was silence for a moment, and one of the older generations spoke up and said this. He said, young man, he said, we pay the bills around here, and we don't want a guitar. And when you pay the bills, well, you can get a guitar. Now, isn't that gasping? And that's a true story. It happens. It's so difficult sometimes for one generation to not only pass the mantle, but even to, to understand the younger generation. So Paul, or excuse me, Moses in his infinite wisdom just says, you know, God, we're going to need a leader. And here's why. Look, look, look at the second part of verse 17. So that the Lord's community, read the church, so the church won't be like sheep without a shepherd. Moses says, once I move on, if we don't have a leader in place, a leader prepared, a leader appointed, a leader anointed, if we don't have that leader, this community of yours, which already is like sheep without a shepherd, so many times, you know, I looked at Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. It's the natural potency of, it seemed like to the nation of Israel, and often the church of God, it's the natural potency for us to go astray like sheep. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to lead the God I love. So we're going to need a leader. We need someone who can step in. I thought about Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When Jesus saw those, the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep just naturally need a leader. And God's people need a leadership structure in place. So if we don't pass the mantle, if we don't listen to Moses' wisdom in this, then what's going to happen is, you know, again, I said this morning, in 20 years, who are the deacons going to be? In 20 years, most of our deacons will either be gone or in a nursing home somewhere. And if we don't help the younger men in our church be prepared to step up, if we don't have the, the, young, uh, the younger folks, the younger generation, prepared to step up and teach and prepare them to teach, then there's going to be a leadership vacuum. In a crucial time in the church's history, there's going to be a leadership vacuum. Well, the Lord replies, verse 18, The Lord replied to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, Inuin, a man who has the Spirit in him, and lay your hands on him. God's response to Moses was a logical one. It would really, and it does seem because it's true. Take Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, here's what you need to understand. You don't build leaders in two weeks. You don't build leaders in two weeks. Joshua came out of Egypt. Now, which means, by the way, if my math is anywhere near right, he was at least 20 when he came out of Egypt, and they'd been wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, in discipline for 40. So this young Joshua, this young Joshua is at least 60 years old. But compared to 120, it's pretty young. It's pretty young. So Moses, because, again, Joshua was under Moses' tutage, man, from almost day one. From almost the time, no, no, he was from the time he left Egypt. So for four decades, Moses pours his life into Joshua. You see the urgency of preparing, doing, taking time for discipleship, taking time for mentorship. You know, if you're a, if you are a, if you have son-in-laws, are you pouring into their lives? 
to prepare them to be the Joshua for their families? If you have son-in-laws, if you have sons, are you pouring into their lives to lead them to be the Joshua's of their families? Again, are we, are we seeing the young people that God has so blessed us with? Because I tell you, go to churches. Doorsville is B-L-E-S-S-E-D with people. We have a wonderful collection of people. And are we willing to pour into their lives? And notice that, that Moses, God says to Moses that he's a man with a spirit on him. It was obvious that Joshua, all these years, that the spirit of God was upon him. And then he says, lay your hands. Commission him. Commission him. And verse 19 tells us how that happens. Have him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and the whole community, and commission him in their sight. In front of them, affirm him, commission him, anoint him, set him apart in front of the group. No, no, no side thing. In front of the group. Now watch, look at verse 20. This is the hard part. Confer some of your authority on him so that the entire Israelite community will obey him. God tells Moses, release some of your authority. One of the most difficult things we have to do as a church, and especially if you're our age, the older age, 62 up or somewhere in there, 55 and up, 50 and up, one of the hardest things we do is to release authority to a younger generation. And do you want to know why? Because we like the way we do things. We like the way we do things. And again, the last thing we want in our selfishness is the last thing we want is to, to give some authority to some young guy and him change something. But that's exactly, because I tell you what, Moses wasn't a Joshua and Joshua wasn't a Moses and things were fixed to change. Because they were going to a new environment. They were going into the promised land. So he says... Be willing to entrust some authority. And have a willingness to let go. Because I'm telling you guys, we need to prepare for the future. You know, one another, again, for our senior adult friends, including which I am one. I often wondered when I was growing up, why didn't, in that Pearl Harbor business, you know, the Pearl Harbor story? Why didn't, and this is true, I'm not like making up a little preacher story. When I was like young, like in the Air Force, go Air Force, and I would go, you know, why didn't America, when they bombed us at Pearl Harbor and killed 3,000 people, why didn't we just load up bombers and battleships and, and aircraft care and just go stomp the snot out of them? And today we'd say, nuke them till they glow. Well, of course, there were no weapons. Like that. And you know what I understood now? Later, as I learned a little more history, we were ready. A lot of our battleships were laying in smoke in Pearl Harbor. Only by the grace of God were, were our carriers out in the sea. We were not ready to go to war. And the church is not ready to go to war. We've got to get ready because we are in a war of sense. And I'll explain that in just a minute because it's not what you think. It's not what you think. Well, then we go to Joshua. So now if you flip your Bibles over to Joshua chapter 1. That was, the, that was the plan. That was the scenario. Take Joshua, put him before the people, lay your hands on him, anoint him, appoint him, release some authority to him, 
in front of the whole congregation so that they'll know who the new leader is. Joshua chapter 1. So after the death of Moses, the Lord's servant. (laughs) Ignore that. Servant. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant. Now Paul's here. I told Judy to come to church. It, It finally dawned on me today as I was studying that do you understand Moses was one of the last... Well, it's kind of like being the, the last of something. Because the Bible says that when he dies, they go into the promised land. And, and, and God had said no one of that generation could enter the promised land because of their disobedience. Now, I wasn't speaking directly to Moses, but when Moses dies, they enter the promised land. He was one of the last. One of the last. He, he, he got to the prefaces, again, of, of the promised land as far as he could go. As far as he could go. And when he dies, then the commission comes. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua. Do you see that? What do you see in, in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, all those places? The Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses. What do you see now? The Lord speaks to Joshua. Do you see the transference of leadership? Do you tr- see the transference of authority? So the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, who had served Moses. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, let me, let me explain that to you. When he says, Moses, my servant, is dead, so is the wilderness experience. Wilderness experience. In other words, back in the, the miracles of the past, all the miracles before, uh, you know, in front of uh, the Pharaoh, the, the leaving of, the parting of the Red Sea, which we sang about tonight, the parting of the Red Sea, he dried up the sea for me. I'm drowning in, the, in his perfect love. Okay, all of that, the, the, the time of, of, again, the miracles in the wilderness, the manna they, they ate every day is about to stop. When he says, Moses, my servant, is dead, he's saying there's a passing now. There's a passing. And again, I really want to say something. I really want you to hear me clearly. Because people don't like it when preachers say this. They like this part. The message of the Word of God, which, by the way, I am 100% committed to. The message of the Word of God will never change. But methods have to. Methods have to. And I know, again, we wrestle with that sometime. Did we say it's a compromise? No! It's not a compromise. I promise you, we don't do church like Acts did church. Sometimes I wish we did, but we don't. So it's not a compromise. But we must adapt our adapt our. When you go fishing, you throw a lure out there and it's yellow. And you fish all day in the yellow lure. Eventually you're going to say, I need to try something else to what? To catch the fish. And the church is wise enough to know we don't do things like we did you know, in, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Where it's a constant metamorphosis for us to change our methods. But let me say it again. Let me hold it up so you see it. This must never change. I'm going to say it outright and I'll say it bold. If it says do it, we all do it. If it said don't do it, we ought not to do it. It is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. So, so he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan to the land that I am giving to the Israelites. Now watch this. Look at verse 3. This is so encouraging. Now, keep in mind, keep in mind, younger generation, keep in mind, 
If you're saying after today's message, you're going, so what kind of a, you know, how am I going to prepare my children? And am I up to the task? And, and what, if, what, if, what if this hatred turns to something more? What if this hatred that the culture has for evangelical Christians, what if it turns into something more? What if there's true persecution? What if there's true persecution? God, as the protector of my family, what's up with that? How am I going to do that? Verse 3. I have given you, I have given you every place where the sole of your foot treads just as I promised. Now here's the reality. The reality is they had not fought one battle. They hadn't even crossed over the Jordan yet. They were still on this side. But God said, someone say, but God said. But God said, I have given you every place where the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. See, it doesn't really matter what culture says. Again, they can define marriage as they want to. But it doesn't change what marriage is because marriage belongs to God. Y'all need to rest in that. It'll really help your blood pressure. It really helps. You know, I heard it over and over again. We get so mad at pagans for acting like pagans. Let me say it again. We get so mad at pagans for acting like pagans. Because it's America, we expect them to act Christian. Dogs don't act like cats naturally. And pagans don't act spiritual. They don't. They don't. So rest assured, God is sovereign. God is in control. Rest in that. It's true. It's not just some preacher saying it. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And let me read Psalm 33, 10 to you. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. Someone say, stands forever. Beyond cultural change, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people He has chosen as His own inheritance. Well, that's no longer true. Because we've not chosen God as our God. Not all of us. A small portion have, but not all of us. But you keep in mind, God's calling the shots. And no matter what the king's counsel is, God is greater than the king's counsel. His purpose and His will will be fulfilled. Verse 4. Your territory, your territory will be from the wilderness and Lebanon to the great Euphrates River, all the land of the Hittites, and, the west, to, and west to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, again, that is so big. That is so big. You know, it's, it's almost like God saying, Okay, Dorisville, you alone are responsible spiritually for the entire state of Illinois. We go, what? That's vast. And when God says this, again, here's Joshua, who, yes, has been a warrior. Has been a warrior. But to think of conquering all that territory is amazing. But look what he says. Verse 5. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live. I will be with you, just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you nor forsake you. So if you are a young parent today, I would take my Bible and write those verses down because it's lovely to see it in the Old Testament. And of course, in Hebrews chapter 13, 5, we see it in the New Testament. I will not leave you nor forsake you. 
You must understand that God is greater than any cultural change, any challenge you're going to face. If God has called you to lead, and let me say as parents He has, particularly the man, the dad, but, 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 but bigger than that, the whole leadership team in the family, if God's called you, He will equip you and He will empower you as a believer in Jesus Christ. You can face tomorrow, you can face the cultural change, and you say, how can I raise my kids? God will give you what you need. And then, then someone says, we haven't given it to me yet. You start praying, you start seeking, He'll give it to you. Someone said this, Someone says, you know, God gives dying grace when you're dying and living grace when you're living. He will give you the grace and the power and the strength that you need to be the parent that you need to be, the grandparent you need to be. And if if you're a senior adult and you just had to come back tonight and see what else Dwayne was going to stick his foot in his mouth about and who he could make mad, you know, well, here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you're living in fear, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because he says, I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. It's a promise from God. Yes, made to Joshua, but the New Testament church we have in 13.5 is true for us too. It's not taking a promise out of context. It's true. He is with us. In fact, I got something better. He's in us. He's in us through the Holy Spirit. So if you're worried about dad or mom or whatever, just remember... Let me make it real easy. Just remember, it's not you, it's him. I told Judy, I said, Judy, you know what's really cool? I heard some preacher say this, not this week, sometime back. But I heard a preacher say one time, you know, really, God didn't ask Moses to do a lot. I mean, he didn't say, okay, Moses, here's the deal. You, you alone, you have to lead the people, feed the people, get the people water, get them there, defend them, get them across the river, all that. You know, really what God asked Moses to do? This sounds familiar. Trust. Have faith. Believe. How do you come into the kingdom? Trust. Have faith. Believe. Throw a little of repentance there on the side. Turn from your sin. Follow Jesus. How do we do life? How do we do life? Trust. Faith. Believe. See, see God doesn't say, you've got to change culture. It's like saying, you've got to go out and win the world. You can't save anybody. It's the Holy Spirit drawing people. To, to the Father, through the Son. I mean, we, we lose that. We lose that. So here it gets really just, it gets gritty and good. Look at verse 6. Now again, God speaking to the new leader, the young dad, uh, if you will, if you will, God speaking to the young dad who's saying, how can, I, how can I help raise my family? How can I do the job I need to do as a dad? How can I do the job as a mom? I'm a mother. i got mother's love. How what can I best help raise my children? God, what do I do in this culture? What am I going to do when they go to school and hear stuff that we know is like way contrary to the Word of God? Way contrary. He says first, be strong. And strong defines it like this. Be strengthened, be hardened, be encouraged. Be strengthened, be hardened, be encouraged. Be strong and courageous. Be brave and bold. Again, is the strong translation of that. Be brave and be bold. For you will distribute the land I swore to their fathers to give them as inheritance. In other words, you're going to succeed. Now, spiritually, we're speaking. You will succeed. You will distribute this land. Doesn't Romans chapter 8 verse 31 say, If God be for us, if God be for us, yeah, who can be against us? 
Now, I think it's sometimes, I think it's sometimes these verses like that one that we say like, like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's a nice verse and we quote it when we need it. But do we really take it to heart and believe it? Romans 8.31 is so true. If God is forced, because He's so great, He's so powerful, really, really, who can be against us? Who can be against us? I wanted to go to Ephesians chapter 6. This is the other kind of a subverse. Because, because of the words, be strong and courageous. I want to bring it up into the New Testament for us today. We're going to mention this in our Scar Wars series we're going to do later on this summer. Uh, we're going to talk about the armor of God. But Paul writes and says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Doesn't that sound familiar? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of whose might? His might. Not our might, His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Pause. This is where I want to get you. I'll get you on this. I want you to understand this. We are not in a cultural war. We are not in a cultural war. We are part of the battle for good and evil. We are in a war against God and Satan. We are combatants in that war. This is not cultural combat. This is spiritual combat. It is bigger, it is bigger, it is bigger than we can ever dream. If we had those spiritual eyes to see, we'd be like that young man with Elijah, and he saw all those, those army, and then Elijah, Elijah said, listen, open his eyes, Lord, let him see. And he could see the, the angels and the armies of God there. And I tell you what, if we could see what goes on where we can't see, we would be totally amazed. Totally amazed. So it's not cultural wars. For, verse 12 of Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Now watch. Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. In other words, again, we'll cover this more in the summer. But, but again, our battle, our enemy is not man. Let me say it again. Our enemy is not man. I tell you what, there's two things we're going to have to fight. We're going to have to fight fear and anger. Fear and anger. We're going to have such a tendency to, to just want to lash out. And again, I remind you, when Jesus lashed out, it was to we religious people, not the lost, not the pagan. You know, again, when the woman was taken adultery, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. At the woman in well who had five husbands, you know, I'll give you the one speaking you can give you living water where you'll never thirst again. Love God, love people. So we're going to have to really fight the anger thing. We're going to have to fight the, the fear factor that there, that there is. So we need to understand that the enemy is not flesh and blood. It's, it's satanic. It's evil. It's a war between good and evil. And we are combatants in that war. Choose it or not. Choose it or not. Choose it or not. If you're born again, you are a combatant in this war. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, No soldier uh, who's in the army engages in the affairs of the civilian life. The affairs of our time. If you've wondered, I wonder, I wonder what it would take for me to get serious about my faith. You're there. If you value your grandchildren, if you value your children, if you value your family, if you value your marriage, if you value this country, you're there. Now is the time. Oh, Dakota... Dakota and I, church isn't church without Dakota having at least one conversation with me. He's a very special young man. 
And we talked for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes after church about the message, and he was agreeing with what I said. And, you know, he was thinking like a 50-year-old, <laughs> some of the things he said. So uh, we walked out, and, and I hooked him up with Jim, his grandfather, and uh, we talked just a little bit more, and we started walking toward the door. And he put his hand on the door, Jim did, to push it open, and Dakota turned and said, I've got one more question. I said, what is it, Dakota? He said, do you still believe that America is the greatest nation on the planet Earth? And I said, yes, sir, I do. It's still a place where I can stand and preach the Word of God. Is it the most spiritual nation? Not by a long shot. Is it the most godly nation? Not by a long shot. But it's the greatest place. And I'm so grateful that God allowed me to be born and live in America. That hasn't changed. That won't change. That won't change. Well, let's look at verse 7 and 8. We've got to get out of here. Now, this is, we're, back in, we're back in Joshua. And this, listen, if, if I could put a billboard up that would flash important, if I know as a speech person, Tyler and Jen, you know, if you're, if you're in your debate and you're trying to teach, you say, now here's, here's a point you can't overstate. I can't overstate what, I'm about to, what the Word of God's about to say. Not what I'm going to say, what the Word of God's going to say. It's so cool that it's in the Old Testament. It's so cool. Because it, it kind of parallels Colossians 3.16. Above all. Now, what does that mean? Above all. So that means at the top of the pile. Above all, be strong in what? Mine says very courageous. Anybody else say that? Very courageous. So we had strong and courageous. Now, listen. And now, who's saying this? God is saying this. God is saying this to his new leader. So he says, now, above all. Say it with me. Above all, on top of the pile. Okay, be strong and very courageous. Well, what is so important? To carefully, methodically observe the whole instruction my servant Moses commanded you. Wow. He says, above all, as a young leader, as a young dad, as a young mom, as a median age Christian, as a later generation, as a believer in these days, above all, Above all, carefully observe the, how much? The whole. Not selective learning, not selective, you know, picking the parts we like. The whole instruction. Now, granted, at this point, we're talking about the Pentateuch. That's all there was. First five books. So that's all there was. But he said, do not, look, look this is strong for Old Testament. You think it's ripped it out of Hebrews or something. Do not turn from it. Do not turn from it. Moses could take a lesson in this. See, Moses all of a sudden gets this wild, wild hair in his nose and says, God, you're, I, I don't think you're doing this right, so I'm going to do it my way. Don't turn from it. I mean, we all could have said, well, Moses should have gotten to go in because he had to deal with those rebellious people. God, don't you understand? And God said, no, I told him to do something. Isn't it wild that God expects us to do what he says? Isn't it wild that God expects us to do what He says? I mean, He actually expects us to believe His Word. How incredible is that? Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. So that you will have success, read spiritual. Please don't read prosperity gospel. That you'll have success wherever you go. Watch, it gets stronger. Look at verse 8. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. 
You are to recite it day and night so that you may carefully observe everything written within it. How strong is that? Not, not just a three-minute devotional in the morning. Good luck. Man, this thing has got to be the center of our, our lives, our heart. The Word of God. The Word of God. You know, when Paul wrote in Colossians 3.16, let the Word of Christ, the Word of God, abide in you richly, lavishly, deeply. We see that back here. You are to recite it day and night. What? Again, excuse me, but when Jesus was being tempted, did he say, well, here's what I think. <laughs> if anybody could say that, it could be him. <laughs> I mean, you know, when Jesus thinks things, it's pretty good. You know, it's like, wow. But did he say, well, here's my opinion. You know, you know what he said? It is written. It is written. When your child comes, with some really hard questions. And by the way, I think this book has answers. And when your child comes with hard questions, it really would help if you say, you were not having to say, I don't know. Or, because I said so. That's the famous parent one. I've used it, my dad used it, my grandfather used it. It'd be great if we could say, well, let's take a look. Because you haven't been Sunday school, you haven't been church, you've done family altar with them. Well, let's see what the Word of God says. And you know what? And watch this, watch this. And you know what you can say? You know what, honey? Son, I don't have an answer for that right now. Can I get back with you tomorrow? Can, can, we, can we talk again tomorrow and let dad research it? Let mom research it? How about that? Because again, this book, this book has authority. This book is living. This book is alive. It's got the power of God on it. And when you start whooping the Holy Spirit, God-filled word... On situations, answers pop up. Answers pop up. Just saying. I'd say it's better than Trump or Hillary, I guarantee you. This book of instruction must not depart from your mouth. You are to recite it a day and night that you may carefully observe everything written within it. For then, for then, for then, you will prosper and succeed in whatever you do. Keep in mind the context. You can be the dad you need to be. You can be the leader you need to be. You can be the church leader you need to be. You can be the pastor. You can be the worship leader. You can be the youth guy that you need to be. Just keep yourself saturated. Now, let's just go two ways. We did it last week. We'll do it again. Saturated in the Holy Spirit and saturated in the Word of God. It's a great combo. It's a great combo. So there's like a, not a closing argument, just sort of a, hey, by the way, He says in verse 9, Haven't I commanded you, colon? Haven't I commanded you, colon? And I wrote circle, and I wrote king of kings. It's like, if you need need a reminder, haven't I, and I would be creator God, I would be king of kings and lord of lords, I would be eternal God, I would be the one who made it all, I, be strong. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. My dear brothers and sisters, do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go.
no matter how this cultural thing plays out, I can't frankly imagine how much more worse... Oh, that's bad grammar, isn't it? Well, it's, not, it's better and worser. How bad it's going to get, I can't imagine. But that guy said, you haven't seen nothing yet. That was Al Mohler, I think, by the way, who said that. You haven't seen anything yet. No matter that, do not be afraid. Don't you leave. No, don't leave today discouraged. You go encouraged because your God goes with you. And friends, that is enough. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the challenge of today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge of the word. Thank you for the assurances of your word. And Father, I want to pray in Jesus' name. Father, I want to pray for those of us who find ourselves in the later years that we would be willing, and I'm not even sure what this means yet, but I know what it means investing in kids and young people's life, even in students' lives, yes. But Father, that we would be willing to release, that we'd be willing to give some of our authority away as we prepare, as we prepare young, the younger generations to, Father, assume leadership roles. Because we do know that one day, either by rapture, and if it's rapture, it's game over for the church. If it's by death, the church will go on. And Lord, we don't want to have a leadership vacuum. So help us to be willing, Father, to release and let go. Father, help us to be willing to speak into the lives of the men and young men that we have association with. Um, Father, we pray, God, that we'll do all that we can to speak into the lives. Help us make it a priority. Father, help us to become... Uh, madly in love with you, Jesus, and with the Word of God. Holy Spirit, may we surrender to you. May we surrender to you. May we be willing to listen to you day by day. And God, help us not to be afraid. Help us not to be afraid. Help us not to be discouraged. Because the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Creator God of the universe and beyond, walks with us. And how incredible is that? May I just pray, Father, a word of blessing tonight on these dear people. Not, and not just them. Father, the ones that filled the building this morning, and not even them, just them. Father, believers, evangelicals, Father, if that's the right terminology, Christ followers, Lord, in our city, in our town, our community, our state, and our nation. Father, may we all come together, and may we rise to the occasion that we've been presented with. So we love you, Jesus. And we will trust you. And I pray in your precious name. Amen.